Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Well, I'm excited about today's show. We're continuing our celebration of Black History Month with Deborah Douglas, author of U.S. Civil Rights Trail, a traveler's guide to the people, places, and events that made the movement. There's so many historic sites related to the civil rights movement, many cities significant to the movement. They have trails and they have monuments, memorials, and museums, and of course, historic sites themselves. Deciding where to go and putting together an itinerary can be time consuming and without prior knowledge can be incomplete. So today's guest has curated a U.S. civil rights trail in a guidebook that is complete with planning tools, personal experiences, and general tourism elements. In the Culture Report, I'm having a conversation with Elijah Haywood III, the Chief Operating Officer of the International African American Museum that is scheduled to open in 2022 in Charleston, South Carolina, a city at the center of the African American slave trade between 1783 and 1808, located at the port where many enslaved Africans arrived. We'll also have Javon's Travel Minute, but right now, let's get into some travel news. How about vaccine tourism? It's becoming increasingly popular for those who have time and means. Since the COVID-19 vaccines have become available, those in countries without access or individuals who are not in the qualifying groups are buying tickets and making arrangements to follow the vaccine to greener pastures. As early as December 2020, tour operators in India were putting together packages to destinations where you could get the COVID-19 vaccine. This includes domestic travelers who are traveling from their state to other states who have more vaccines available. Now, destinations are promoting tourism campaigns to target international travelers. For example, Dubai has recently launched an appeal for digital nomads to come work in Dubai for a year to live and work near the sea, with the added bonus that all residents of the UAE receive a COVID-19 vaccination. And Cuba, they have a campaign that's promoting beach, the sea, mojitos, and a vaccine. How about that? To people who are willing to go to Cuba. Coming up in 2023, construction is underway on the Hip Hop Museum, which will showcase the history of hip hop in the Bronx, the borough where it all started. Located at Exterior Street and 149th Street to start the Bronx, Point Development, a housing and entertainment complex. The museum will be inside of that development, honoring the music and other parts of hip hop, including DJing, breakdancing, and graffiti art. Those are the three elements of hip hop. I learned that on the hip hop tour that I took in New York, which was very fun and interesting. Now, according to the executive director of the Universal Hip Hop Museum, Construction was to begin in 2020, but was delayed because of the pandemic and budget issues. An official groundbreaking ceremony will happen later this year. The museum's organizers hope to open in 2023 for the 50th anniversary of hip hop. Well, how about a trash to treasure story? A Colorado woman is repurposing used gondolas to help restaurants stay open and offer outdoor dining. The cold weather has either forced some restaurants to close and others greatly diminished capacity because of COVID-19 rules on indoor space and events. Wendy and Rich Tucciarone began worrying about the fate of their Steamboat Springs, Colorado craft brewery and restaurant. In the summer, of course, it was easy to occupy outdoor space, but winter posed many challenges with snow, snowstorms, and ice, and of course, just cold weather, especially in a Colorado ski town. 
Now, according to an article in Food & Wine magazine, during a creative brainstorming session, the couple's accountant suggested converting out-of-service ski gondolas, small enclosed cube-like spaces that transport skiers and snowboarders uphill into private outdoor dining spaces. The couple are avid skiers and mountain bikers, so they like the idea immediately. But even in a mountain town, used ski gondolas are very hard to come by. Enter another woman, Dominique Bastian, who owns The Gondola Shop, a small gondola refurbishment and repair shop with seven employees in Colorado. And just on a notion or an instinct, Bastian started buying up old gondolas. Really didn't know what she was going to do with them, but business plummeted for her as well, as people just weren't traveling that much, and not many ski lodges or resort owners were asking for gondolas to be repaired. But she bought up a bunch of old gondolas. And good thing she did, because all of a sudden she received a phone call asking if they could be converted to dining spaces. So that's exactly what she started working on. And not only was her business saved, but she was very instrumental in saving other restaurants in the town. And not only that, across the country, because orders started coming in from other cities like Cleveland, Washington, D.C., St. Louis, San Francisco, Utah, and Sun Valley, Idaho. So her team, which includes painters, welders, woodworkers, and several other artisans began churning out customized dining gondolas as quickly as possible. So that is a true trash to treasure story. Katherine Johnson, one of the central characters in the book and the 2016 movie Hidden Figures, has received past due and well-deserved national attention. She was a mathematical genius and historical figure whose research at NASA is now recognized as crucial to putting the first American in orbit, landing on the moon and many other space developments. In honor and recognition of her groundbreaking achievements, the aerospace and defense company Northrop Grumman has named a new NG-15 Cygnus cargo craft the SS Katherine Johnson. It's fitting that the SS Katherine Johnson will travel to the International Space Station this month. The company traditionally names its spacecrafts after pivotal figures in space exploration history. The company cited Johnson's pioneering mathematical work, saying her work at NASA quite literally launched Americans into space and her legacy continues to inspire young black women every day. In 2019, NASA renamed one of its West Virginia facilities, the Katherine Johnson Independent Verification and Validation Facility. In November 2020, a satellite was also named Katherine Johnson in her honor. Born in 1918 in West Virginia, Johnson showed exceptional math skills from an early age, she began college at the age of 15 and excelled in geometry that later led to her work on orbital paths in space. In February 2020, Johnson passed away at the age of 101. Her name is finally recognized as the brilliant, pioneering, once hidden figure that she was. The space shuttle bearing her name will launch this month. After rumors swirled that a COVID-19 test before domestic flights would be required, the White House said that this is not in the plans. The thought of such a requirement raised serious concerns among U.S. airlines, unions, and some lawmakers. White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki said at a briefing last week that reports that there is an intention to put in place new requirements such as testing are not accurate. In addition, a spokeswoman for the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention said, at this time, CDC is not recommending required point-of-departure testing for domestic travel. She added the CDC will continue to review public health options for containing and mitigating spread of COVID-19 in the travel space. The CDC said last month the agency was actively looking at expanding mandatory COVID testing to U.S. domestic flights. The CDC on January 26th began requiring negative COVID tests or evidence of recovery from the disease from nearly all U.S.-bound international passengers aged two and older. 
The White House and officials told Reuters this week that no formal order had been circulated and that officials were not expected to endorse requiring negative COVID-19 tests before domestic flights. An idea that has been under serious consideration is for CDC to issue recommendations advising against travel to specific areas of the United States with high COVID case loads, although those travel recommendations would not be binding. The CDC currently has a broad recommendation discouraging all non-essential air travel. Now, COVID testing may not be required, but wearing a face mask at U.S. airports is and TSA has announced it will fine people $250 for violating face mask requirements at U.S. airports. Last week, the TSA updated its plan to enforce the U.S. masks mandate, which was put in place as part of President Biden's executive order on promoting COVID-19 safety in domestic and international travel. The TSA in a news release said, that it will recommend a fine ranging from $250 for the first offense up to $1,500 for repeat offenders for those who violate the mask mandate, which started on February 2nd at all airport screening checkpoints and throughout the commercial and public transportation systems in the U.S. Michelin is lending support to African American Museum initiatives. As reported in Tire Business, Michelin North America Incorporated has agreed to work with the International African American Museum to develop an exhibition focused on freedom in the age of mobility, which will consider mental, emotional, and spiritual voyages as well as physical travel. This partnership supports Michelin's efforts to recognize the legacy of those whose movements have not always been free and to teach the value of being free to move in all spheres of life. William McMillan, executive sponsor of the African-American Network for Michelin North America is quoted. The initiative, which comes eight months after Michelin adopted a diversity awareness plan of action in the wake of events that fueled Black Lives Matter protests across the nation in 2020, will include funding to support making the exhibition a traveling exhibit. The museum's first, after its premiere at the museum in Charleston, as well as creating curriculum for K through 12 students based on the exhibit. And as a part of partnership, a group of Michelin employees will have the opportunity to explore their genealogy through the museum's Center for Family History. The new museum is scheduled to open in summer 2022 in Charleston a city at the center of the African slave trade between 1783 and 1808. The International African American Museum is designed to be a living and interactive place that will offer visitors of all ages the opportunity to learn about an essential part of American history and to discover in particular how this African American population impacted the creation of the country. So stay tuned for the Culture Report later on in today's show with Traveling Culturati. I have a one-on-one -on -one conversation with the International African American Museum's Chief Operating Officer, Elijah Hayward III. Well, that's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, we'll have Javon's Travel Minute and U.S. Civil Rights Trail, a traveler's guide to the people, places, and events that made the movement with author Deborah Douglas. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you check out the website, TravelingCulturati.com, and connect with me on social media. And don't forget to join the Travel Club. Yes, we will be traveling again, so we want to be ready when it's time. And now, Javon's Travel Minute. Every Tuesday on our social media channels, it's Travel Tip Tuesday. And I love reading all of the travel tips that followers post. We've all experienced many things during our travels and have learned a lot from those experiences. Whether they are mishaps or favors, we learned what to do and what not to do, giving us a list of travel tips for our future adventures. 
Well, there's one tip I live by, and it's especially crucial when you reach a certain age. Let's just say with age comes wisdom and lessons learned. What is my number one travel tip? Never pass up an opportunity to use the lavatory. <laughs> it never fails when you think you don't have to go. The minute you leave a facility, you have to go. And when you're in need, the opportunity isn't there. I have too many stories to tell on this subject, and some are not so pretty. So there you have it. Rule number one, never pass up the opportunity to use the bathroom when traveling, or even if you're out and about. Go before you leave. You'll thank me. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. There are so many historic sites related to the Civil Rights Movement. Many cities significant to the movement have trails with monuments, memorials, museums, and historic sites themselves. So deciding where to go and putting together an itinerary can be time consuming and without prior knowledge can be incomplete. Today's guest has curated a U.S. civil rights trail in a guidebook that is complete with planning tools, personal experiences, and general tourism components. I'm excited to chat with Deborah Douglas, author of U.S. Civil Rights Trail, A Traveler's Guide to the People, Places, and Events that Made the Movement. Well, hello, Deborah, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hello, Javon. So okay. what was your inspiration to create this guide? Timing gave me the opportunity to write this book because 12 Southern Travel Offices designated an official civil rights trail in 2018. And so my book is the first ever book to follow the official trail in the South. As I said, you know, with so many historic sites related to the civil rights movement, sometimes we stumble upon them or sometimes we know of the top two or three and we may gravitate there. But I did not know that there was that designation that was made in 2018. So how did you stumble upon that? You know, I'm just nosy. I read everything <laughs> in sight and I worked on this book through Moon Travel. It's a longtime travel publisher. So of course, you know, they have their ear to the ground. And they actually invited me into a process to write a proposal for the book based on my work as a journalist. I cover issues of equity and justice. I was the founding managing editor of MLK 50 Justice Through Journalism, which covers poverty, power, and policy in Memphis. And I created and taught a graduate-level capstone at Northwestern's Medill School of Journalism on the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And my students spent an entire summer doing investigative journalism, traveling around the country to delve into themes tied into the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And I've been a contributing writer for The Crisis, the 100-year-old-plus magazine of the NAACP. So... Everything just matched up with everything that I've been doing in my life anyway. And so you had a lot of the foundation and the background, because I was going to ask, how long did it take you to compile all of the data for the Civil Rights Trail and the guide itself? Two years? I'll tell you, <laughs> I'll tell you it involved a lot of spreadsheets. <laughs> but in terms of traveling to these places and then the writing, I got all of it done within the span of a year, a little bit less than a year. Wow, that's impressive. Very impressive. <laughs> now, one of the first things that I saw in the guide is the 10 unforgettable experiences. So do you mind sharing with us what they are and why they stand out for you? The number one of the 10 unforgettable experiences along the U.S. Civil Rights Trail is the National Museum of African American History and Culture. It is just so beautiful, and it is a museum dedicated to African-American history, but every museum should be as beautiful as this one. Every time I go to D.C., and I go to D.C. a lot, I go to this museum. Sometimes I just drop what I'm doing, and I just go over there to eat lunch because on the bottom floor, they have a cafeteria that serves themes from African-American cooking styles. So say if you want to have coastal fare, you can go and have that. If you want to have regular soul food, you can go and have that. And then it's surrounded by all of these images from black history, especially the civil rights movement, 
and you sit communally. And so every time I go there, everybody is just as excited to be there as I am. And so I end up having a conversation with people that I don't know, but who become friends. It's just a great place to go. It is a beautiful structure. Yes. And then number two is the National Civil Rights Museum at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. Now, this is close to my heart because I spent time as a child growing up. I went to middle school and most of high school in a small town outside of Memphis. And I was active in church activities, especially something called Christian Youth Fellowship. So I spent lots of weekends learning about the Bible, learning about volunteering and giving back to my community in Memphis. But this museum is just very well appointed. It tells a rich story. And whenever I go back just to visit or to go back and see family, I just make a beeline and I go over to this museum because I learn something every time. And, you know, you get the broad outlines of the story, but they have specific information about regular everyday people like children. And, of course, this was the motel where Dr. King was assassinated. And you can see his room and see the balcony where we've seen that photograph of him laying down, that iconic photograph. So you can really be up close and touch this history and pay tribute. Also in Memphis is uh, I Am A Man Plaza. And there's just this beautiful sculpture that was designed by Cliff Garden. And it has blocked out letters, I Am A Man. That was the messaging, that was the words on the signs of the 1968 sanitation workers during their strike, the strike that brought Dr. King to Memphis. It's just gorgeous. And it's a beautiful space that really invites you to contemplation. And it's also sort of like a sacred space or something that's going on in society, say a policeman shooting or something like that. People may go there to pray and commune and just be one with another. And of course, everybody's bucket list should include the Legacy Museum in Montgomery, Alabama. The Legacy Museum from Enslavement to Mass Incarceration is the entire name. And it also has a lynching site component to it in Montgomery. And it really tells you the whole truth about the black experience in the United States. And it really helps you understand systemic inequity in a way that's accessible. And it it tells you through stories, and it talks about individuals who have lived their lives as emblems of a lot of the systemic barriers that we face in society. And then I really love Little Rock. Little Rock is the site of the Little Rock Central High School integration crisis in the mid 50s. I like Little Rock because Little Rock liked me. (laughs) They were so nice to me in Little Rock. I was offered a job. Someone offered to help me find a place to live, even though I didn't say I was coming for the job. (laughs) It was really great. They were so nice to me. But Little Rock Central High School is still a functioning high school. And across the street, sort of kitty corner, is a visitor center run by the National Park Service. And there's like a little museum inside. So the park rangers will contextualize the integration crisis in that visitor center. Then they will take you on a tour of that area and take you inside the school. Across from the visitor center is the Magnolia gas station. And that gas station had the only payphone that was available so that international media could call back to their various outlets to report what was happening during the crisis. Wow. And the Rangers, they all have their own particular storytelling style, but they all bring something special to the story. And then across from there is a bench that was dedicated by local students in honor of Elizabeth Eckford. She was the student who is seen in those iconic images of that crisis with her arms crossed with shades on, trying to get into school. She didn't get the message that the staging area had been changed. So she showed up ready to go to school, ready to learn, and she couldn't get in school that day. And her voice is in my book, I Talked to Elizabeth. The Mississippi Civil Rights Museum. It is gorgeous, too. (laughs) Okay, so here's the deal. It's in Jackson, Mississippi, and that's where I got my start in my career in journalism. So it's close to me for those reasons, too. Um, My family is from Madison County, just north of Jackson, which was critical to the civil rights movement in Mississippi. 
and the Mississippi Civil Rights Museum is connected to the Museum of Mississippi History. So when you walk in the door, you can go one way and get sort of like the overall history of Mississippi, going all the way back into when there were only Native, Native Americans, or you can go another direction and go learn the story of the Civil Rights Movement in Mississippi. And it's gorgeous because it's so interactive and it's just really rich and it's just a really great experience. It'll get a lot if you go one time, but it's also one of those things where you can go again and again and you'll get something out of that experience every time. I was really excited to see a particular quilt on the wall in that museum. It was a quilt designed by Ms. Hurtisine Rankin. I was lucky enough in the early 90s to meet Ms. Hurtisine Rankin and talk to her. She was a master quilter who lived in the Port Gibson area, and she taught local women skill of quilting so that they could create something of value and support their families. This particular quilt tells the story of her father and how he was shot down by a white man and he was not punished. And she writes the story on the quilt or stitches the story on the quilt. She says, and nothing was did about it. And that is in that museum. Also, Dexter Avenue King Memorial Baptist Church in Montgomery. This is where Martin Luther King Jr. as a young man was a pastor. He stepped in after Bernie John stepped out. So both of them are mentioned in my guide. He stepped into the role of minister in 1954. It's such a beautiful church. It's so well kept. I actually got to go in what was Dr. King's office when he was a pastor there. And then you get to visit the sanctuary, and there are these stained glass windows, and if you catch the light ever so, it's just a beautiful, sacred thing to behold. It really is. I got a chance to visit there. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And there's also the chair in the pulpit that he sat in. It's still there. You can see Dr. King's chair. Then in Selma, there's the Edmund Pettus Bridge. And Edmund Pettus was actually a Confederate general. And so it's really kind of funny that they tried to get across that bridge so many times before they actually got a chance. The, the people who were, uh, who were advocating for voting rights in, um, in Selma, um, they, they finally got across that bridge and were able to walk several days until they got to the Montgomery State House to demand the right to vote. And there's talk of changing the name of the Edmund Pettus Bridge in honor of John Lewis. And there's a debate around that also. The one thing that really struck me about my visit to this bridge is that there's a man named Columbus who's on one side of the bridge in the park area where you have all of these monuments and signs. And he will contextualize the park for you at no charge. He's just a friendly guy. He likes to talk about what's going on. And so Columbus was kind of like a cute troll at the bottom of the bridge. And on the other side, you have the Selma Visitor Center or the Interpretive Center, and it's like a mini museum. So that's a great place if you go to Selma to start because there are park rangers in there. They can give you information. You have a mini museum. There's even like a communal space. So a lot of tour groups end up in that space. Um, I was there with Joanne Bland. She lives in Selma and she was 11 years old when she got caught up in Bloody Sunday. So Selma was just a really rich place to go. And I will never forget, I had the roasted turkey wings at a local community college there. It's in my book, too. They were delicious. <laughs> <laughs> and then if you go to Birmingham, of course you got to go to 16th Street Baptist Church. This is where four young girls died in a bombing facilitated by the KKK. You can make an appointment and go visit the church. You'll spend more time in the basement and then they will contextualize the sanctuary for you. And it was really sad. The thing I learned about what happened that day that these four girls were murdered is that two black boys that same day were also murdered and racist attacks. So Birmingham didn't lose four people or four children that day. They lost six children. Hmm. And then back in Mississippi, in the Mississippi Delta on Money Road, you have the ruins of Bryant's Grocery and Meat Market. And this is where Carolyn Bryant was when Emmett Till and family members went in to their business. And where Carolyn, I don't know when she concocted the lie on Emmett, this is where they interface. I call Carolyn Bryant the original Karen. 
Yeah. (laughs) Funny, not funny, but I can certainly see that. You know, it's great that you start with those 10 unforgettable experiences and what they meant to you. But hearing you describe them and identify them, these are the iconic moments where these major situations happened and they kind of define the civil rights movement. Do you know how many places altogether are in your guide? I made an exhaustive search to make sure that I created, you know, rich experiences. So everything that's on the official trail is in this book, but I also reached out to find other places or artifacts or experiences to round out that experience in these areas. And also, I intentionally tried to include as many Black-owned businesses as I could because I believe in ethical travel and I believe anywhere you go, you should leave it better than when you came. And so, unless otherwise specified, you may assume that any business I suggest is Black-owned. And again, another fantastic piece. And I love that you include experiences and those other enhancements, itinerary enhancements, because it's not just about visiting the sites. But it is about that overall experience, kind of that storytelling that's going to take you to that place. And I love how the book is categorized in the different places and with those restaurants and because it kind of slows down your experience and encourages you to talk with the locals and really absorb all of that experience. Tell us about including that and if that was part of your experience as you were there at those locations. Well, you know, this history can be pretty heavy and it's also educational, but, you know, I wanted to create 360-degree experience with my book. So, if you know, if you go to a museum, you know, you take in, you know, this often devastating stories, you know, you need to process it. Also, you know, there are many opportunities to celebrate the things that we accomplished. So, you know, then you're on the upside. But then you get hungry or you might want to go shopping. You know, this is a travel book, a travel guide. And so you want to have that full experience. Also, I include nightlife because sometimes you just want to just like go back to your room, take a shower, put on your best clothes and just go shake your groove thing. So, for example, in Memphis, you know, I talk about Beale Street or places off Beale Street that you can go to or nightlife in Birmingham or places you can go in Atlanta because, you know, this is a trip through the South and it has a lot to offer. And so we don't normally think of traveling to black spaces to engage with black stories as the thing to do. And they're not very often curated by uh, tourism professionals or tourism offices in a way that makes our communities destinations. But I try to asset frame our communities because, you know, these 12 travel offices that put this trail together, you know, have realized that. And I think that this is just the beginning of a contextualization of our history and our story in a bigger way. Absolutely. And it's interesting that you say that because last week we had a conversation about tourism gentrification. And so it really speaks to what you're talking about and having that 365 or that total experience and not just visiting a site and then moving on, but really immersing yourself into the community and the culture. And also just that evolution of that was then and this is now, but preserving the historic value. So kudos to that. And it kind of answers the next question I was going to ask you was what makes your guide to the U.S. Civil Rights Trail a must-have? And I think you've answered that, but is there anything you would like to expand upon on that? Well, I'll say there's no other book like this because there's no other book that follows the official trail. And often we don't hear the story of the civil rights movement talked about through a geographic or a travel lens. And so every chapter painstakingly lists a timeline of what was going on in that particular area. And so now you can get more nuanced about what was going on in a particular area or a particular city that made those people rise up. Also, I have a playlist in chapters of my book because I don't know about you, but I'm a great migration baby and I grew up on the road traveling back down to grandma's house and other family members. And so we listened to blues music in the car, or sometimes, you know, it was gospel music. 
So I went and I found songs that match the area or the city that you're traveling in. So, for example, in Mississippi, I talk about Phil in his Ballad of Medgar Evers and or Nina Simone's Mississippi Goddamn. I absolutely love that. And I did see that thumbing through the guide with your playlist because music in itself is storytelling and it kind of takes you to a place in time. And I just think that is wonderful that this guide marries that music narrative, especially, you know, when I think back to that time, I mean, I was born in the 60s, but when I think back to that time, music is part of that. And there were songs that were written because of things that happened, events that happened, or the feelings that people had. So, yeah, you're absolutely right. That is a 365, and it allows you to use all of your senses in exploring the uh, right. civil well, rights trail. Reverend Shuttlesworth, he was the founder of the Alabama Christian Movement for Human Rights. It replaced the NAACP in Alabama because Alabama outlawed the NAACP there. And he established a choir that still exists today because music moved the message. Absolutely. And with that, I would have to ask, is there an audio guide or an electronic or app version that's in the future, possibly? Absolutely. This book is already out there on Kindle, and the audio book will be out on Tuesday, February 23rd. I read the preface. Bree Newsom read the foreword, and she's going to be reading the foreword in the audiobook version. And then we have this beautiful narrator, Rebecca Lee, who is reading the rest of the book. Well, I am just so elated that when someone thought to designate the Civil Rights Trail, that they also thought to pick someone like yourself, who was already invested in it, and would bring forth such passion in curating it. Because I think so many times in travel books and in guidebooks, they kind of lose the essence of events and things. And I think that in talking with you, it seems that you have really incorporated the life into the travel guide. I almost don't want to call it a guide. I just want to call it a great reading and a nice book that just so happens to have the civil rights trail and just so happens to be a guidebook. But in thumbing through it and certainly speaking with you, that's what it sounds like. I actually call it a travel book, a history book, a civics guide, and a roadmap for activism. And my mother is intent on calling it a textbook, and she insists that every school teaches a book. And I'm like, Mom, I'm not sure it works like that. She's like, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> that is absolutely wonderful. So where can we get it? Of course, you can get it on Amazon, and they deliver it real quick. And then bookshop.org, bookshop supports independent booksellers. That's something we definitely want to be mindful of. And you can go to Barnes & Noble. Great. So again, that's... Deborah Douglas, author of The U.S. Civil Rights Trail, A Traveler's Guide to the People, Places, and Events that Made the Movement. So whether you pick it up to physically experience the trail or just to read about the comprehensive history of the civil rights movement and get those people, places, and events, either way you look at it, it's a win-win so thank you again for joining me today. What a pleasure speaking with you. And I can't wait to read it all the way through and thank you to uh, look at some of these stops. Well, when I come back, I'll be chatting with Elijah Hayward III, Chief Operating Officer of the International African American Museum on the Culture Report. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. The website? TravelingCulturati.com. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born from the arts, music, food, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report on the International African American Museum in Charleston, South Carolina.
After a couple of decades in planning, the International African American Museum is well underway in Charleston, South Carolina, and it's slated to open in 2022. The museum will be devoted to telling the story of the passage of African peoples from slavery to emancipation and freedom. It will be located at the point of entry to America for a significant portion of enslaved Africans transported during the transatlantic slave trade. And on the phone with me is the museum's chief operating officer, Elijah Hayward III. Elijah is a native of Beaufort, South Carolina, a Hampton University graduate. And while at Hampton, Hayward and his friends founded the biggest circle to encourage student engagement with the Hampton University Museum, which also introduced Hayward and his peers to the archival side of the museum. This is the place where Hayward discovered the research papers of the Penn School, established in South Carolina in 1862 for newly emancipated African slaves. Well, hello, Elijah, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Ujavan, it's such a pleasure. Thank you for the invitation and the interest in the work that we're doing here in Charleston. Well, it certainly seems as though your journey was destined for the International African American Museum when I read your bio and what you did at Hampton University. How exciting is that? You know, Providence is something that I think we all can acknowledge as being a part of our lives. And, you know, being a native of the South Carolina Low Country, attending Hampton University, an amazing HBCU in Virginia that has an amazing history that's actually tied to a low country. And being a kid that always has had an interest in history and culture and actually being raised in part by culture institutions like my public library, I do feel like many roads have led me to this very moment. I want you to tell us about the site and its significance. The current secretary of Smithsonian, Lonnie Bunch, who we all got to know as the founding director of the National Museum of African American History and Culture in Washington, D.C., likes to say that history must be told where it happens. We feel so fortunate uh, to be able to reclaim a very historic site that was known as Gadsden's Wharf. Gadsden's Wharf, that centuries ago, was the largest wharf in the colonies. Charleston was the wealthiest city in the colonies. And there's a way that the narrative of enslaved people, African captives, who first arrived in Charleston, has not fully been explored in the way in which we hope to do. So building our museum at this site of the former Gaston's Wharf, which will be consisting of not only the museum, but a memorial garden and a center for family history, is a way to really explore a really big piece of American history in a way that will privilege the African-American experience. So this site is one that's sacred, one that gives connection points to the Civil War. As you can see, Fort Sumter, where the Civil War started from this site, the pathway that slave ships took is visible from our Atlantic World Gallery, as well as Sullivan's Island, a place of particular significance to Tony Morrison, a way that we really think about the point of quarantine and that connection point to West Africa and the diaspora. So, you know, it's hollow ground. It's a point of pilgrimage. It's one that we feel really fortunate to be stewards of during this new phase of our visitor experience. What are some of those things that you think will be unique to the International African American Museum in Charleston? Well, the first piece I alluded to previously, the idea of having a site or a museum that has such historical significance. It's also a place where African Americans around the country have connection to. Because nearly half of all African captives that came to America came through Charleston, we argue that every African American can trace at least one relative to our location. So there's something really powerful about inviting, you know, all Americans to come, but particularly African Americans to come to this hollowed ground. So, you know, the notion of having a garden space that is a didactic tool in itself meant to be educational and a place for contemplation and reckoning in a particular way, but also having a museum itself that has been ranked among the most anticipated architectural feats for the coming year as we look at the design as a way to really foreground the narratives that we, we share. The architect, Mr. Henry Cobb, was very clear that the gardens, that the grounds are the focal point, are the reason why this meaningful institution is being built. So the museum is rhetorically silent. It's meant to appear as if it's floating. It is a sleek, contemporary, and really a testament to this amazing uh, historical moment 
that we're a part of in preserving this history and promoting this history as well. So for us, the building and grounds are going to be amazing draws, but they're nothing without the artifacts and the media and the interpretation that will happen within the walls of the museum. So there are all these connection points that we're so thrilled to be able to share with the public. And they're ones that we find connection points with people across the country, with even the world, as we really explore the African-American experience from a global lens. And as you mentioned so much about the site and it being such a significant location, because of the large numbers of enslaved Africans who were transported through there, and I think that's something that a lot of Americans, both African-American and and non-African-Americans, don't know the large numbers of enslaved Africans that were transported through Charleston, South Carolina. So do we know that number of how many or the percentage of those who were enslaved and transported through that particular port? We argue around 48 percent, 47, 48 percent. That's huge. When you look at the entire nation, so that would actually be the largest port of the transatlantic slave trade. What does that do? I mean, I think that it offers an amazing opportunity for exploration. Professor Henry Louis Gates calls Charleston Ground Zero for Black History. And there's a way in which that feels appropriate, given the sheer number of African captives that enter through Charleston, but the ways in which the Gullah Geechee culture continues to be a connection point between the black community in America and the black community across the diaspora, and all the ways in which we see cultural touch points showing up anywhere we have communities of African descent in America. So for us, we're just stewards in a way that allows for us to make these connection points that hopefully allow all of us to feel seen, affirmed, and to be able to celebrate this amazing history that connects us all. You mentioned a few times the Memorial Garden, and so it's going to be called the African Ancestors Memorial Garden. So I'd like to talk a little bit more and get an understanding of what that's going to be about. You know, I'm not sure about you, but I grew up around my grandparents, and they all happen to be gardeners. And there's a way in which what they grew in their garden for beauty, but also for, you know, practical use by way of food, had a connection point to their ancestors. So the way in which our garden has a similar function, you know, you ask the question, how does plant life become a connection point to culture? How does it connect the coast of South Carolina to the coast of West Africa? I mean, this is a really uh, tangible thing because the reality is, is that African captives introduced so many forms of vegetation to America namely rice cultivation. So we're really excited to offer a place that honors the legacy of the ancestors who we left in Africa, those who lost across the Middle Passage, and those who came to America and had to endure the harshest conditions. And also offer a place of hope and contemplation. Our leader in this endeavor is landscape architect Walter Hood. Walter Hood was most recently named a MacArthur Genius Award recipient He's a renowned landscape architect based in California, a North Carolina native, and really a pioneer in this field. So, you know, to have an opportunity for our exhibit to be extended to our ground with vegetation that connects us to West Africa, with places that allow for contemplation, but also gathering and connection and community, and also tangible memorials such as a fountain that is lined with outlines of bodies that replicate the famous Brooks figures of bodies on the slave ship. Having that be something that is a feature of the grounds that offers a true place for memorial and contemplation. You know, we want to honor the fact that, you know, our site is a site where many African captives arrived. Many died in a warehouse where captives were stored waiting to be sold. And there's a way in which the spirits of those who we lost have propelled us forward as a community and as a people. And that triumph has to be honored as well. So uh, there's a lot of work, we'll say, being done as the garden becomes a way to engage all these complex dialogues. I can think of no better use of of our grounds and space to really complement the narratives that we share both inside the museum and beyond in the digital stratosphere.
Absolutely. And having that space for reflection, I think, is very important, especially for a museum of this magnitude. I know whenever I have visited a museum that really touches your soul, I always look for those places where I can just sit and reflect and kind of unpack what I've just witnessed or what I've just experienced. And just having those quiet moments and having those places, and especially as they tie to your own history. And you're absolutely right. Not necessarily with my grandparents because they passed away early, but certainly with my parents. My mother has a garden, and so spending that time in the garden with her is always, always special. I'm getting very excited about the opening. Do we have a date in 2022? We do not have a date, but we are really thrilled to invite the public during the summer of 2022. So uh, you can look out for a formal announcement very soon. What is the website? IAAMuseum.org. IAAMuseum.org. And there's still a place to donate. There is. You know, we are so excited to have a very robust membership program. And this is a way in which all Americans from all walks of life can join us for our journey. We definitely invite you to follow us on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn at IAA Museum as well. But as a member, you know, you're part of our family. You can actually say that you had a stake in making this institution a reality And right now, our charter membership program is open between now and the time that we open. So we're just looking to invite as many people as possible to join us for this journey. This is American history that we all must educate ourselves about and experience. It's not just one part of, but it is part of the fabric of American history. And I'm excited about the opening of the International African American Museum. Elijah Hayward III, thank you so much for joining me today. It's been such an honor and a pleasure. Thank you for the opportunity to share our work with your audience. Well, that's it for the show today. Wherever you go, go with all your heart. Confucius. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Ladies and gentlemen.